Those are verses from Surah Al-Baqarah, verse uh, 155 and 156. We open the, sh- uh, the podcast today with a prayer uh, for Nadir Hassan. Uh, and I've got, uh, as usual, I've got Fasi Zaka. Uh, and we've also, right at the top, uh, we've got an old friend of the podcast, Umar Varaj, and, uh, and, a, and another friend, uh, hopefully expected to join us soon. Fasi, uh, we, uh, I called you first last night. Um, yeah. You know, we decided to do this because uh, he was a, a real force of nature and uh, and a very special uh, human being. I think that uh, I wasn't quite clear as to just how special, but looking at people's reactions, I think it's been a it's been a it's been illuminating. Uh, I don't think any of us uh, would could could lay lay any claim on being a very close friend, but we have so many people uh, in a specific generation and a specific space that were in fact extremely close to him. Uh, hung out with him, uh, you know, on a number of occasions. Uh, really liked the way that he wrote, uh, and uh, it's been a very sad day. So we thought we'd do a in memoriam. Uh, for Nadir Hassan and a tribute to kind of the generation that, uh, that he represents uh, a generation that I think has done much, much better than, uh, than the Gen Xers, uh, that are the hosts of the how to Pakistan podcast. So I, uh, agree. I think, uh, last night when you called, I didn't know I hadn't read it online and I was, quite shocked and deeply saddened because it was so unexpected. I'd personally been out of touch with Nadir for a number of years since he moved out from Islamabad. And uh, I think for most people, like Musharraf said, I don't think we can claim that we knew him better than uh, a lot of people who were very close with him, who were uh, in touch with him regularly. Um, But again, in whatever little capacity we knew him, he was a really warm-hearted, open, unassuming, um, an incredibly relaxed individual. I would recommend everyone to go and read uh, Sharyar Mirza's uh, tweet thread about him, which really captures just how special of a person he was. And I think one of the things that I read in that, which I recognized because I used to live in the same apartment building as him in Islamabad. We were in separate wings, and I'd every so often go over to hang out is he was just generous and open, no matter what he was doing, whatever. He would always make time for you. And secondly, he didn't discriminate. Anyone and everyone could come in. His house was like, his flat was like a pit stop. And people were always discussing a whole number of things. He was intellectually curious. He was also someone 
who was gifted with incredible taste. He could talk about obscure music, obscure film, obscure series, and uh, he had his passions, and uh, he really, really would get excited with those. But anyhow, we've got with us uh, Omar Waraich. Omar Waraich knew him as well, and let's, uh, we've got Omar after a long time, so it's great to hear from him as well. Hi, Musharraf. Hi, Fassi. Hello. Very, very, very sad occasion. Um, like, like both of you, I, I cannot claim to uh, have been known neither that well or been, you know, a close friend of his. But I did meet him on a number of occasions when he was in Islamabad in that same uh, building. Sometimes, Fassi, I think it was Abu Dhabi Towers in the lower ground floor. Yes. Uh, um, this was around 2011, 12, then. And I stayed in touch with him, but I lost touch. Again, like you, after 2015, I was just going over my old messages. And the last one was in 2015, where he asked to meet while he was in London. And we exchanged numbers, but he'd gone off to Liverpool to go and watch his uh, favorite team. Uh Nather in some places has described himself as journalist by day, Liverpool fanatic by night. Uh, but he was so much, so much, much more. Uh, and you got to know that instantly and you see it. I mean, the, really the tributes on Twitter really give you some insight into how loved he was, what a warm-hearted person he was, how incredibly well-read and cultured he was, uh, how very funny he was, how very smart he was. And... Uh, some terms, you know, actually came up repeatedly. I was seeing everyone commented on how whip smart or super smart he was. The fact that he wrote brilliantly. And, and I think most importantly, that he lived life on his own terms. That's something that came up in the tribute that Sharia Mirza gave, the one that Omer Javed and, and lots of other people, uh, Asin Bhatt and others, uh, mentioned this. Um, and this really, I, it always struck me. He, he didn't, he didn't look for approval from anyone. Uh, he loved what he loved, and he really loved it. And uh, uh, he, you know, make, being, although he was incredibly well known, I think fame was far from any sort of ambition that he had. Uh, I don't think he ever chased money or a job or anything. Uh, but he really, really seriously invested in his passions. And he then he shared them with the whole world. Uh, on Twitter, in his writing, in his conversations. Uh, a very, very special person. You know, I remember one of the best nights of my life was actually when I was uh, visiting his place and there were a number of people in Arib Azhar had come. And I, it was the first time I ever heard his song uh, which is now one of my all-time favorite songs, but it was just such a magical moment. And, you know, I just kept thinking is also is that he had an incredible sense of humor. Um, he was really witty. And he was also a very deadpan sort of delivery guy. You almost didn't know that his brains, cogs, and machine was working to deliver a really beautiful line. I... I I mean, I, his sense of humor was uh, really something special. I mean, I almost imagine if he had been here, uh, you know, he would have some comment about 
Musharraf's lack of fluency when uh, opening the program right now. Yeah, that was uh, <laughs> not my not my finest moment. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you for that. And any 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 chance any chance I had of uh, of editing that out, which which is by the way, which is which was a which was a serious thought that I was entertaining has been uh, has been shot. I, I I suppose one thing you know, sort of thinking about this is is why do why talk about uh, Nader today on the How to Pakistan podcast. And I think I said this to both of you, um, but um, let's just welcome uh, Shakir Hussain into the conversation as well. And then I'll make the point that I was about to make. Um, Shakir, uh, as, as he connects his uh, audio, Shakir, of course, uh, you know, uh, didn't know Nader uh, very well at all, I don't think. But uh, uh, much like uh, much like the rest of us, I mean, I think Fussy, you probably interacted with him the most, being given the physical proximity. Um, but I do think that Nader's, uh, you know, sort of age cohort, you represents at least for me a, a very specific uh, kind of uh, brilliance in 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 Pakistan. I think that the the people that are mourning him most, uh, most, most uh, are the people that uh, really are the present and the future of the Pakistani discourse uh, in so many ways, or at least I hope they will be. Uh, Asad Hashim, uh, you know, who is one of the bravest journalists and, and an actual like proper journalist, uh, you know, and I think a gift for this country is um you know what was close and again same same sort of age cohort i saw uh essen butt who's also you know i think been on the podcast a couple of times um essen is a professor at george mason in uh in the u.s and they were schoolmates um and also they were part of that five rupees thing and and i think that's one major thing that i'd like to explore but before we go there uh, just wanted to formally welcome Shakir into the conversation. Uh, and being from the same generation as us, I think, you know, this is maybe a moment to look back and, and raise a, you know, a toast for, you know, a whole generation that has had to suffer this terrible loss, but in, in a sense also recognize uh, that in Nader's brilliance, uh, you know, is encompassed uh, so much of, of what these guys represent, these kind of, they're all 30-something and they're so they're so brilliant and gifted. Um, Shakir, obviously very uh, sad. Uh, absolutely. Sad uh, you know, uh, thank you for having me here and good, good to be here with you guys. Uh, I got to uh, sort of uh, uh, meet Nadir because of uh, Shariar and Rabel Mirza. And, uh, you know, I met him a couple of times socially and uh, we would uh, sort of trade DMs on uh, pieces that were out, uh, stuff that he was working with. I remember him doing uh, a piece on the auto industry and us having a conversation 
uh, about that. And, uh, you know, he, his sort of sticking point was, why are the editors calling it a fledgling industry? It's been around forever. It hasn't done shit. It's inefficient. And he was genuinely angry about it. And that was one of my first sort of exchanges with him. And I kind of chuckled and I said, you know, I, 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 uh, I like this guy. Uh, another time we talked was when a news uh, outlet owed him eight lakh rupees and uh, he was reaching out to see if I could connect him. I did connect him to two people uh, there. I don't know what came of it, but he was uh, very polite. He thanked me, uh, you know, he called, gave me a call and we chatted for a bit and said he would send me his CV. He was looking around for work. So really bright guy. I enjoyed uh, uh, following him on Twitter. He was... Uh, uh, you know, I've been, I've been following him since I sort of came onto the platform. And again, you know, I knew him through Shariar and Rabel Mirza, who are dear friends. So I'm extremely sad. And just reading, I've been reading uh, things that his uh, friends have been posting. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a big loss, uh, I think, across the board uh, for a lot of people. see that's a lot of dead air yes so i was just thinking no thanks shagir i i remember one of the things that struck me about him which was uh, i was always interested because he was just in many ways such a cool person because for he literally in many ways didn't have most of the anxieties everyone has he was not competitive uh in many ways you couldn't see even feel anything materialistic to him. Um, and, you know, I never really even heard him say anything negative about people and he wouldn't even get worked up. But I remember one thing that was really shocking to me is that he had a PlayStation 3, I think, at that time. Um, and I didn't have one. And, you know, I thought, okay, wait, I'll play some games at his place. And it was just full of music and some of the things that he was watching. And apparently he had only bought it to play one game, which was FIFA. And, and he hadn't bothered to explore anything else. Um, and that was just it. You know, he was exactly in the mold. This is what I like. This is what I'll do. And any other parameters of what social expectation might be, they didn't factor into uh, what he was uh, thinking or doing. And uh, and when we talk about generational change, maybe I think that's one of the things is that um, his generation is a bit truer to uh, themselves than maybe ours was. That reminds me, Fassi. I remember when I turned up to his flat inside, uh, that PlayStation was doing a whole lot of things except there was no game on. Exactly. So, <laughs> Music was playing. He was typing a column on it. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah. unreal to me. And there were a bunch of people sitting there making noise and shouting. There was someone like me who actually struggles to find quiet and patience and a place to sit and write and agonizes over each sentence. Uh, here was this guy who was engaging with everyone, making sure people are comfortable. Music is blaring from the thing and he's writing a column really, really fast. And the next day you read it and it was a brilliant, sober piece, uh, which had always had some very, very serious analysis. 
and yet was uh, very mordant as well. There were always these great, I was actually having a look today again, and there were all these really, really funny one-liners, some of which uh, I hope we can share as well. Uh, well no, it was uh, all very, very remarkable. Yeah. yeah what so if, I think, I think that... Uh, the odd thing is I keep, sorry, uh, I keep talking about the PlayStation because I remember one day, and it's simply because I went a couple of times and I said, okay, let me bring some games. And it was just like, you'd be like, it's full of music. And then I remember one day telling me, yeah, this PlayStation ki tohine, ye jo behormati saath ki hai. Right? There's no one who buys a PlayStation to do what you've done with this. But he was perfectly cool with it. Sorry, Musharraf. No, I think Shakir wanted to say something. Go ahead, No, Shakir. I was just following up to what Omar uh, was saying about him, you know, writing this piece in uh, a very chaotic sort of environment. Uh, Shayar Mirza had tweeted that, you know, he could sort of, write he would knock out pieces on his phone and i was just blown away by that a, you know someone's gonna write a 800 to 1200 piece on a phone wow <laughs> no and he was such a prolific writer as well if you think about it it is uh first he started uh, i think when i first came across him was his columns in the express tribune yeah. and i think uh, although I have my own feelings about what the Express Tribune was, but it definitely gave. It was a platform for a whole generation of writers and reporters who came up. And, and the English language channel then and the Urdu language channel, uh, people who actually became very, very accomplished academics, journalists, um, researchers, people who did a whole bunch of things. And then he used to write in the news and then a whole bunch of pieces of news. And his breadth was actually quite incredible. I mean, he used to cover politics, national security issues, terrorism. Like you said, Shakir, he can talk about the economy in a very sophisticated, thought-out way. He could be reviewing books, both fiction and nonfiction. He could be writing about popular culture in a very, very highly developed way. We'd be writing about U.S. politics, public policy. Uh, and then there was a whole bunch of writing that actually I was looking at Zebun Asad Berkey's tweets today and it reminded me that, oh yeah, he used to be an editorial writer for the news for a number of years. Uh, and then he also wrote for the Economist Intelligence Unit. So there was a really, really great breadth of, to his writing. It was uh, something I really admired. It's extremely, extremely rare to see a writer expand out like that. Um, you have to go actually back quite a bit. Uh, it's interesting for someone who was actually very, very contemporary. There was like an old style polymathic, you know, <laughs> uh, ability of his writing. You have to think, you know, the, the big famous writers of uh, the 70s and 80s in the US who used to do that kind of thing. I am. Um... I, I was reading through his pieces and something strange kind of occurred to me in, in thinking about him. And I think, you know, uh, Shakir alluded to it. I think a lot of people have, and I don't know what other way to put it, but he was just, he was just one of the coolest guys I, I, I ever met. Like he, he was so, I, I, again, I struggle with the word, but he was just cool. Like he was um, unassuming and he didn't try at all. And, and you know, uh, there was no effort, you know, there was no sort of layers or like, 
I mean, he was very sophisticated as a thinker and in the way he came across, I was so well-mannered and polite and really soft-spoken, but, but he was super cool. And, and he did like, and, and this is in the most positive way uh, possible that, that I mean this, but you know, he just did not give, uh, he didn't, he wasn't shaped by, you know, concerns that, you know, were invisible. He was just nothing. Um, and I actually find that that, on reflection, that's a quality that quite a lot of his friends have as well. I mean, I was speaking to Shetty, and I think that was a tough uh, conversation to have, obviously, because it's such a such a raw emotion right now for him and uh, and Shetty as well. You know, a bit. I mean, these guys are so <laughs> they're really cool. Like they're very very cool, and I and I love that. Uh, that you know so many of these guys are in the public domain um and and they write you know and they're prolific and and their ideas are uncomplicated and they have such great moral clarity i thought nader was among the most unambiguous op-ed writers that we had uh absolutely in the last many years i i completely agree i mean one of the things that i really admired about him was like he didn't give a shit like, I mean, he was writing uh, what, he, how he saw it and uh, he was using data and he was using his language, but he didn't care who got upset. And I mean, there was none of that. I mean, he, had he went for everyone. Planning. He criticized every government. Absolutely. Uh, you know, mullahs, the Taliban, the U.S., whoever, and God, you know, just in the most uh, honest and unflinching terms. And it totally, Shakir, no pretentiousness either, which I thought was really striking. Like when you met him, there was, he didn't have to showboat. He was very confident in who he was and what he was writing and his craft. And he didn't need to put a performance up for anyone. And again, uh, a couple of times that I did meet him in person, that's what struck me was that, you know, uh, this guy had his uh, head screwed on straight. He's very, very things, comfortable in his own skin, for yeah. sure. One of the things that struck me, uh, Mush, was uh, it's actually, I think this is something that Fasi Zaka actually pioneered in Pakistan, which is taking very serious issues of Pakistani politics and speaking to them through references of Western pop culture. Uh, and this was like a great skill that a bunch of people had. And, and to be able to talk about serious issues with great lightness as well. Uh, he did that very well, but I remember also his great friend, Omer Javed, they used to do this a lot. I remember the 2013 election, they both announced on Twitter that they'd founded the Pakistan Party Party. Okay, and they said everyone should vote. <laughs> <laughs> Pakistan Party Party. Yeah. <laughs> the symbol of which was a glass quarter full with opaque liquid. <laughs> and and I think what's cool about that is that it's both like it's both like fun piss take but it's also very serious commentary these guys were I think a lot of these guys you know that we're talking about uh, you know uh, privileged backgrounds and you know there's been a few debates recently about you know privilege and knowing your privilege and i think that that's what's especially 
amazing about these guys is that they are privilege conscious and and they use they have used this privilege especially you know being conversant with the english language being able to be upwardly mobile in terms of you know having uh, a a seat at the table in the wider public discourse um and unlike a lot of uh, their elders you know and i you know I'm sort of the line starts with me but obviously i'm not that old you know there's lots of boomers in that as well unlike sort of previous generations this this quality that you just mentioned shaket um of just not giving a shit and and just being sort of you know true true to themselves and real i uh i don't think uh, i don't think it existed in the quantum that it that it does now and i think that nader was among the very finest uh, practitioners of uh, of giving uh, that color to our discourse what was really striking to me was the number of people on twitter who said i never met him but i felt i knew him uh got to know him over twitter knew his love and passion for things as various as liverpool football club the english cricket team bruce springsteen uh and so many so many other passions like, that's really striking for to to be able to touch people's lives people you've never ever met or may not even have known that well it's also very hard, heartbreaking to uh you read some of the stuff you know his friends his close friends had had written and uh you know and shared uh, on twitter as well and uh you know i really really my condolences to each and every I don't know. I think one of the things that struck me in one of the things that struck you have has everyone lost fussy or is it just me? No, uh we back I can back. still hear. Uh, the problems at your end Musharraf because you've muted your yeah now you're fine. No, so could you just start back with um with that sentence because i lost you so there was an internet sort of hiccup here i apologize for that oh no i was just saying is that you know his love of football was the one thing um that i particularly didn't understand and it's interesting again online how many people had you had this incredibly gifted and cultured young man who was a writer of renown and a lot of people had not even seen that but they had gravitated towards him because of his love of football and the commentary he would do on that front um in fact it's really interesting i remember during a world cup i asked a question which apparently was a really ridiculous question i saw a team playing really well and i said well these premier club matches are they like at half this level or whatever and apparently that's a really stupid thing to ask because they're probably even much higher level of football because these teams are around the world and they play really well and literally everyone laid into me even though as i was still struggling to get information on that question and he was one of the guys who just answered no it's a very divine sport the premier league and stuff like that but a lot of the people that you see online it's something that I haven't understood but that particular passion of his had also endeared him to a lot of people. 
Yeah, just looking at some of these uh, tributes again, it's, uh, I think a, a life well lived is one in which you, uh, you know, in which you can give a decent account of yourself to the maker. Uh, and that's, that's entirely between the individual and the maker. Um, but how you touch people's lives and how you're remembered is, is incredibly important. And uh, certainly there's seems to be no doubt that uh, the old adage uh, seems to be playing out because it's just an incredible outpouring of uh, very sincere and, and very deep, uh, deep uh, sort of sense of intimacy with, uh, with who he was and, how many how many people he he ended up uh, touching a very very profound sadness maybe if if we've still got um all three of you on the on the line maybe uh transition a little bit uh, and, and what, you know, the kind of uh, the generational question. Um, and obviously Varaich is actually one of them. Varaich is a solid, I think, uh, maybe an early millennial, but, but certainly clearly qualifies as a, as a millennial. Um, but these guys are all in their mid thirties now, right? I'm on the cusp. No, I'm late. I'm only, I, I'm just two years older than Nadir. Yeah. Omar, why can't yeah. you commit to anything? Ah, this is, this is <laughs> Pick a side already. You know, you know, Fassi, the last time you said that about someone on this podcast with me was, yeah. uh, it was about uh, Khosrow Bakhtiar. So you now put me in that category. You know, one of the but one of the things, Fussy, on that that I yeah. thought was interesting about Nader was when you read him, you couldn't predict where he's gonna go with a piece. It was he was genuinely original. He actually had greatly original takes and wouldn't go for the easy consensus opinion that would develop over an issue. You know, I remember once yeah, for that's example, actually a great insight because now that you've mentioned it, now when I think about it, this was one of the things that you couldn't pin him down. You could not pin this him week, down. This is what was he's he, going to say. Was he a conservative? Was he a libertarian? Was he a lefty? He didn't care for those kinds of you know, uh, abstract distinction. Yeah, he, he was, he had a prescient um, uh, clarity about issues. Um, I mean, I've gotten lots of things wrong, but I think the one that really stings is my uh, endorsement of the military courts right after APS. And, uh, and I think he wrote a piece maybe on the 7th of Jan. I must have written one on the, probably like on the 20th or something, just days after the thing. Um, and he wrote one and he was just really like no holds barred, straight, clear, uh, unambiguous. He thought it was a terrible idea and, and he explained why. And, and part of it was those military courts are never going to, you know, they're never going to cease the, the, you know, the two year 
uh, sunset clause was not actually going to work. And, and all of the things that he wrote ended up being uh, what actually happened. Um, I ended up two years after that writing a piece apologizing for, for that position. Uh, but, you know, Nader um, didn't need to apologize because, uh, because, of, because of his kind of moral clarity as a writer and as a thinker. I think that's a really powerful thing. And again, I would, maybe it's just me and, and it's uh, overly, you know, maybe I'm seeing it uh, too much from, from my specific lens. Um, one, one can be guilty of that at times. But, uh, but I also think there's a generational aspect to that. I, I really do think that this, this lot of kind of folks that were born in the 80s um, tend to be more more clear and and uh, and less ambiguous when when they when they pick positions and they don't care too much about the pragmatism of uh, any one uh, position or or so th all positions this is this is just if you give me permission i just want to read two paragraphs from a piece he wrote right after mashal khan's murder and at the time you'll remember many people thought okay this is a turning point this will change this can't stand so just days after he wrote, we so desperately want to believe that even though Marshall's murder was senseless, it will at least be a catalyst of change. We praise every politician who issues a rote condemnation. We look for any sign that this time civil society's voice won't be drowned out. Giving in to hopelessness is of no use. This will only ensure that the change never comes. But let us also not put our faith in the political class or in the media for what it is. For it is they who have brought us to this place. It is the media who toss around blasphemy charges without ever being concerned with proof, knowing that they are endangering lives. And it is the politicians who are so cowardly that they either join the crusade or sit quietly on the sidelines. One murder won't change them when they have been responsible for so many killings before. It's an incredibly brave thing wow. to write. Very, very clear eyes. This was for the news, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry, just lamenting no, the time a time where you could write where you could where, where where you could write clearly in, in the news. That's that's a real tragedy, Musharraf. Actually, the, those pieces I was thinking, many of them couldn't be published now. They will not be published today. You know, going on to another thing, um, it just also occurs to me is that, you know, during those times we were in the same building, um, he, he struck me as being incredibly unique and as someone without effort who stood out because he wasn't really subject to most norms because he didn't really care about them. And sometimes I even think he didn't even know about them. And the interesting thing that I was just thinking right now is that usually we categorize those people as malungs. And, but he was so sufficiently different, even that doesn't fit him. Because, um, you know, you get a certain image. And the other thing about him is even in how different he was, like something that Musharraf mentioned is that he was extraordinarily polite. Uh, very accommodating and, you know, well-mannered, uh, uh, if, if one really had to say it. 
and um, and it's just, it was a he was a he was a nice boy like he was a you, like genuinely nice nice kid. or brought up be bilkul sahi tha. I mean, he was very very polite. नहीं तमीज़दार था यार मतलब बदतमीज़ नहीं था और और अपने you know और बड़े सख्त उसके views थे like you know the the disagreement that he would have with with many people would be profound but it was never expressed with the kind of bitterness or the you know the nastiness the kind of you know uh, take down kind of, like it was just no, he just expressed his opinion and it was yeah uh, it was a special guy so Musharraf I mean I remember you know even in his book reviews where he's being critical uh one there was always a focus on the text and not the person many people use book reviews as an excuse to take a swipe at someone yeah or something else that they did this focus is completely on the text so here's an example he was reviewing a book by a, a foreign correspondent on Pakistan and Afghanistan and he said it must be admitted this is a slight book it contains no profound truths or insightful observations but for anyone looking for a quick read into the very specific subject of the lives and loves of a foreign correspondent this book will not disappoint <laughs> oh he's talking about uh, he's talking about the <laughs> taliban shuffle <laughs> really good <laughs> you know that's another thing I, i i don't know if you've just come across that epic take on of a book by hillary mantel No, the one that oh, it's 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 amazing and one it's worth reading. It's extraordinarily vicious and cruel, but as usual, it's uh, got some exquisite, uh, exquisitely crafted sentences and imaginative uh, put downs. And one can just imagine that, in many ways, you know, Nader had the same gift with language, but he would just never put pen to paper in that way, like the way that he wrote this sentence. uh it's obviously he didn't think highly of the book he got the point across but it still comes across as a very cultured be respectful yeah exactly and and i think that's a because he could have easily gone further with this and i just think that also reflects who he was no it's sad really i think that he didn't get to write a book of his own um, yeah i think as as fun just uh, said something about a book as well um one of the things that it made me also i think any time someone in your you know wider circle passes away that you haven't spoken to in a while it reminds you of you know all the people that you know you you would have liked to have had a conversation with um and and didn't not because you didn't want to but because you know life is life is busy and it's hard and everybody's doing their own thing and it made me think about you know a lot of people and how infrequently i uh, i'm in touch with many people that i'm super fond of i know it sounds trite and 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 overplayed but uh, uh but but i think it's okay um i think you know if you think of someone you see something by someone and you know them pick up the phone and uh, and call them i guess the difficulty for me and again just to take me back to this generational thing is that there's there's just so many now and and you know i think we're all, all all four of us are super privileged that we know so many of these really prominent whether they're you know uh, academics like uh 
like the aforementioned Essen Butt or their uh, journalists, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, growing into public intellectuals. There's, it's a huge number of them, and uh, and I hope you know, ten years down the line, they're able to speak about you know, um, the kind of the Gen Z uh, that that comes after them even more glowingly. But uh, but yeah, call people. And uh, you don't have to tell people, you know, how great they are. Just, uh, just catch up, see how people are doing. That's one thing he used to do. I mean, I was just looking back with deep regret. Actually, a lot of the time it was him who reached out to me uh, when he moved to Islamabad afterwards, when he was visiting London, elsewhere. And other people told me as well. I was speaking to Amir earlier, and he said... Uh, he is the one who made sure that we stayed in touch uh, and we and we kept up that friendship, which was actually a very unlikely friendship in many ways. They're very, very different people. And that's the thing about him. You actually couldn't imagine you know, him in any particular set of people. Uh, I think he had friends across generations, across interests. Uh, and he would actually put in the hard work in a conversation, I realized. The, the couple of times when me and him actually got to spend a few hours together alone. And I, I imagine Fussy has similar recollections. Uh, it was him doing the hard work of meeting me on, you know, my limited areas of interest. Because his canvas was so broad uh, that I, there were lots of things that there I couldn't access. So he would very much, you know, say, okay... This is uh, this might be a conversation you're interested in, and he would pursue it along those lines. Shakir, the um, b- because in a sense you lived in Karachi, and and so many of these people, I, I don't think it's an accident that so many of the the people that have come up in this conversation are from Karachi. I mean, one because Nadir himself uh, was. But also, I think Karachi is kind of the epicenter of uh, of talent in uh, in this country uh, for many reasons. Part of it is just size. Part of it is being a cosmopolitan city. Um, do you do you have any sort of reflections on on this kind of generational uh, question or reflection uh, about? Uh, talent and, and the availability of talent. I, I, th- I think it's a dramatic uh, shift in, in the quality of talent in Pakistan between people, you know, again, uh, kind of Gen X, where, where, you know, there's plenty of talent, but it's not, the country's not bubbling over with it to, to millennials, where I think that if we started counting, we would not get to even halfway down the list uh, and 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 we we would we would be three hours into recording. Um, I agree. I mean, look, as somebody who was born, raised in Lahore, and uh, you know, uh, decided to set up shop in Karachi uh, at you know the age of twenty-two, uh, no, twenty-two first, and then twenty-four again. Um, I I I definitely agree. I mean, Karachi is a tough city. And I think, uh, like you said, it's very cosmopolitan. Uh, you know, there's, it's aesthetically uh, crap. It's a hard, hard city. So I think that, you know, when young kids, uh, w- whether they're, they're coming from a place of privilege or not, uh, have to go through that city. Obviously, it's tougher for uh, the, the ones without the privilege. 
but I think that also sparks a kind of resilience, a kind of cynicism uh, in you. You're not as uh, protected as you say you are in Lahore or Islamabad uh, <clears throat> growing up. Uh, yeah, so I, I do think that Karachi does produce um, and just the diversity, man. I mean, the fact that you can plug into, you know, uh, culture, food, music from any part of Pakistan sitting in Karachi and not having to travel uh, is also a huge factor. You know, um, one other thing that just Omar was talking and it just reminded me of right now was that, you know, in terms of him sometimes making the effort and trying to understand someone. So I remember just maybe on our second meeting, we were sitting down and he says to me, I think you're going to really like two things. And both things I hadn't seen before. One was, both were ironically, he thought were cartoons that I'd enjoy. One was Archer and the other was uh, Metal Op uh, Apocalypse, which is about a heavy metal band, which is really massive. It's almost like a world economy. And I went back and I saw them and I absolutely loved them. And uh, I also remember he loved Lost. Um, and we had a really big disagreement on the quality of the uh, finale and what the actual reveal was. But his detailed knowledge, the way he consumed art was unlike most people I'd seen. And it was just an incredible passion. And it spanned from uh, really accessible things to some really obscure stuff. So it was always, always interesting. And you just wondered with the kind of prodigious output he had in terms of the work he was doing, how he managed to just consume it, let alone think about all of it. It was just uh, awe-inspiring. I think, you know, 20, 20 years ago, um, when did the Express Tribune start? I think it was 2008 or nine, maybe, maybe earlier, maybe, maybe seven. Later, I think a bit later. It was a bit was later. It? It was, yeah, yeah, it was about 2010. Yeah. So like, I think it's really interesting what that did uh, to the space. Like, you know, what you're describing about Nader, like I can think of, there's a whole crew of St. Marion's again, kind of around my generation, a little bit older, a little bit younger, um, you know, with this kind of diverse uh, set of interests, but, you know, like they're all computer scientists or doctors. I, I guess that, that's a bit changed, Mush. I, I think, yeah, and I think, yeah, go ahead. You could actually go and become, they, no, my ambition is to be a writer, it's to be a journalist, it's to write a novel. This was new. And this was often people who had, you know, had access to any number of careers they wanted. They weren't pushed into this by any means. But it, it changed Pakistan. Suddenly you have these kids who people rather who um, were actually incredibly well-read highly cultured uh, had great educations the other thing i think actually shakir and musharraf while I, I totally agree with you about karachi i also think there is a couple other things one i think is actually lums uh, if you look at the number of people who went through lums including some on this podcast and then that was actually uh a place to connect with other people, but then also a springboard to do pursue further education abroad. Uh, and there are a whole number of people who did that, who started out 
from there, did well at school, went to LAMS, then went and did grad school abroad. Uh, came back with PhDs, people like Umayyad Javed, Iram Hadad, other people. Uh, then I think also the HEC scholarships also really uh, created ground for people to pursue the social sciences and humanities in a way that didn't used to be the case in Pakistan uh, so much. Before people, you'd go abroad to pursue PhDs in, in the hard sciences or, or how you can make money, get an MBA from somewhere, uh, or pursue higher medicine. Yeah, there's definitely, I think, an expansion of the set of options. Um, but I think that this could be this could be interpreted in, in a number of ways. And the way that I that I think about it is very specific. Like I I really think that there's something incredibly brave and um, and ballsy about uh, you know, for lack of a better term, about a bunch of burger bachas choosing journalism. As, as a life. Like that's not something that people with these backgrounds could do. Maybe, maybe the range of opportunity for those kinds of options expanded around, you know, when the, when the war in this country really kicked off and you had, um, you know, the, the, the press in terms of just the number of papers and the number of uh, channels, you know, blew up. And so it created a number of opportunities, but, those choices weren't comfortable choices. This is not a lucrative field even today. Uh, there's this weird now kind of anti-media thing that this Trumpist, Modiist, which, which consumes uh, a good chunk of, you know, otherwise decent and educated normal people even here. But, but being associated with, with the media as a life choice for like a, for a grammarian is not uh, it's it's the hard choice that that somebody's making and the reason it's so obvious is that you know some of the some of the legends at least that you know in my generation really even you know senior to me um you know it was incredible for them to make that choice like i think for me i i guess i think of hassan zedi as as kind yeah. of you know the the kind of the ultimate in that in that way, you know, he chose journalism and, and filmmaking as, as a life when he could have been, in fact, I think he did, he did hard sciences at school. Like he, yeah. you know, he could have gone to Goldman Sachs and he, he could be like a half billionaire at this stage, right? And, and a lot of his friends are, like there's a lot of famous Pakistanis in Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley that nobody's heard of, but that he's classmates with, right? Or that went to school around that period and that, you know, did as well at school. This guy comes back to Pakistan and, and chooses this life. And, you know, and, you know, people can have their opinions about individuals and, and about, you know, newspapers or whatever. But, you know, if Hassan doesn't do that and doesn't work at the Herald, I don't know how many other people don't, you know, don't get commissioned to do pieces. Even today, it's the same thing. There's so many new people that are writing for the weekend paper at dawn every week. And, you know, and Hassan is curating that. But the reason but we pick out Hassan is, sorry, just one, just, just to finish the yeah. thought, Omar, the reason we're talking about Hassan is because like, there's like four of him in that generation in a country of 220 million people. And I guess the thing about Nader's death is that it, it kind of has made me think deeply about his generation. And it's not four, like it's 400 or more, right? We couldn't, if we started counting, get through the whole list. And I think Nader's death is like the first 
blunt trauma to this generation and, and certainly a shock to, to everyone who knew him and, and was fond of him and loved him. I wonder though, Musharraf also, it's, if maybe it was also about that particular time in Pakistan's history when there was actually a lot more space. I remember the first time I met Shakir, uh, he used to write a column. And I think Kossi used to write a column in the news at around the same time yeah. as well. And these are people I used to read. But when Shakir used to make fun of Shakir Aziz, the news editors would call him up and say, Yab then no names no names Shaq <laughs> I think what happened after that was the fall of Musharraf and there being the military having to retreat quite a bit uh, there was still a lot of international attention on Pakistan so there was a lot more scrutiny at one point there were like a hundred foreign correspondents based in Pakistan so Pakistan was in the news constantly and then there was a PPP government which I think, you know, allowed some of that space for two reasons. One, I think they, they genuinely would like for there to be a bit more space. It would help them as uh, a political party that was often in opposition. And then also it was this completely effectless government that made so much mistake that there was so much criticism that it deserved. And now I think that space has kind of shrunk. So I think there were like about 10 years in between where there was a good chunk or space yeah. uh, that was opened up under Musharraf and then progressively opened up more and then has now shrunk to near suffocation point. Yeah, I, I, I agree, Umar. I mean, you know, I, I think that the time that you're talking about, there was a lot of money coming into the media. Uh, all these states were looking for young writers. So effectively the 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 generation the 400 uh, musharraf that you had uh, alluded to earlier i mean they found uh, yes i mean it wasn't living large but it was a decent enough uh, wage where you know you could um, uh, you know go out a couple of times a, a, a week you could uh, uh, get your vodka from murray brewery or a case of beer and uh, you know you could live uh, my time, uh, you know, when I, when I, I was starting out, there was no way, man, you could make uh, a, a living wage as a journalist. I mean, so, so I mean, case in point, right? Um, because my first job out of, uh, out of lums and, you know, it was, a. Anyway, I mean, look, we're talking about Nader and, and his generation. Yeah. I think they, they did. Uh... No, but what I, what I meant to say was that for our generation, when you started off at, say, Dawn or uh, Herald, or, yeah, or yeah. Herald uh, yeah. you know, and, and Dawn was the one, some of the, one of the better paymasters. So yeah. it was actually an, an option at that time. Uh, it wasn't an option for us, but this generation that we are talking about, that Omar was saying that the space opened up for a period of, say, 10 years, there was also enough. I mean, it wasn't great money. But compared to, you know, our generation, it was decent money. Yeah, yeah you, you could rent a flat in Islamabad. Yeah, there you go. I mean, and actually, it was also a function of that time when Islamabad ended up having flats. No. Uh, sectors like I mean, I, have been, uh, Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. But, you know, look, I, I think two things, again, just going back to the wider generation. I mean, I think of people like... Um, 
and I know there's there's a whole bunch of them. So, but the three that I can think of right off the top of my head, Qasim Noman, who's just a beautiful human being, uh, and also you know from this generation, uh, and is actually killing it as a journalist, you know, abroad, like in an international news uh, agency. Isam Ahmed uh, is doing the same thing, and uh, uh, Saira uh, Jafar, uh, if I'm not you know mistaken, I think is she was with Al Jazeera, but now she's with one of the European, uh, like Euro television or, or Euro news or one of them. The point being that the, the fact that this generation was in media wasn't just a function. And I know that's not what you're suggesting, but just for listeners to contextualize this properly. And this is connected to the next point that I want to make about this, but these guys were all really, really good. Like, like we were talking about Nader. I mean, Nader was just a beautiful writer. And, and I think just blazing brilliance in terms of, you know, how his brain worked. Um, uh, Sharyar Mirza, we were just talking about Sharyar. He's, he's with TRT, right? So these are all people that have a global skill set in, in journalism. It wasn't, and, and the reason I make that point, and this is really important, is that we are now entering an era in this country where uh, shitting on the media and shitting on journalists and shitting on expertise is is become sport, right? And there's this disgusting kind of glee that people take when people in, in the mass media lose their jobs or when they hear that a paper is under pressure yes. or when, when they hear that papers can't meet their salary. And the fact is that there were journalists like Nader who, you know, uh, and all of the people that I've mentioned, not one of them is, is wealthy because of, uh, because of news media. Not one of them was forced into this choice. They chose journalism as a form of service to the people of this country, to the country, and to their own conscience, uh, conscience right? And so uh, I, I've been trying to find why I feel so strongly and I've, why I've been pushing this generational idea. And it's because this is really the first generation that did that in our country en masse at scale where all these you know grammarian kids and and Edisonian kids and smart kids who could have been doctors could have been uh, you know at silicon valley could have been uh, mbas and on wall street but they they actively rejected that life and they chose this one salute to them thank god for them our country is much better off for it and our country is much worse off for not having another uh, among us anymore may allah rest his soul in peace yeah this is also the first social media generation. So you're talking about people who started working just as Twitter and Facebook were becoming big. And it was quite interesting around that time that uh, there weren't that many people on social media back then. So it was a much more interesting space where you actually had the space to get to know people in that way. Yeah, which absolutely. now would actually seem quite daunting. Well, also, I think social media was very interesting, uh, you know, just in terms of how journalism in Pakistan worked as well, right? So you had this crop of really bright young people, uh, you know, who were just putting out what they were good at. And as a result of it, uh, you know, they broke into uh, writing, whether it was writing op-eds, job mobility happened uh, because they were... Uh, you know, talking to and accessing editors and sometimes owners, uh, you know, senior journalists. Whereas before uh, uh, social media, it was also pretty stratified, uh, you know, you, you, how uh, writers were 
uh, recruited or how people wrote op-eds or even young uh, journalists uh, getting jobs or interviews. It was, so I think that there was a big boost with social media in terms of uh, mobility for journalists. Let's see. So I, no, I, I just agree with much of what you've said. I also think that it's really interesting that at that particular time, you know, when you had the liberal liberalization as well, you went from something like two channels to a hundred and three years. You had a sudden massive spike in demand for human resource. In fact, much more so then the market could provide trained manpower. Yep. And what it also did was that it allowed so many people with all these interesting backgrounds as people had to test people and get more and more in. I also think one of the interesting things is that, you know, when social media started off, it added a really interesting dimension to the news. And it also, I remember there was one really prolific commentator. His name was Nader El Drus, and then he became a op-ed writer for a while. He was also really gifted. And one of the issues that has come is that, you know, with the whole social media as the ability to game the system became more and more apparent as people figured it out and you can get essentially crowds to do sort of digital mob behaviors that didn't exist in the early days when it wasn't yeah. possible in the same fashion. And that has become, you know, it's made it beholden to groups who can fund it, who can leverage those mobs essentially for what is non-transparent behavior. Uh, and it is directed at the very institution that will allow you some degree of transparency, which is the press. And I'm just hoping one of the key things that may sound odd is, but as these firms become more regulated, it was interesting because some of the arguments in the beginning was much more in terms of digital free cowboy-esque frontiers where it was entirely libertarian. And as we saw that essentially people offline who were powerful found ways to game the system and they just allowed it to go on for this long. I'm just hoping, um, I'm looking at this experiment in Australia, maybe that works, maybe in a number of other areas, but hopefully, we'll find another generation willing to come in to the press in the same way. Because like you say, there's a almost cruel glee that comes with any um, bad news that has befallen the media. And that's something that's bad for society, that's bad for democracies, that's bad for the health of nations. And I don't think we're in it alone, but it's something that needs to change. So I mean I'm usually the yeah I'm usually the uh the cheerleader and the optimist but uh I got to tell you pussy it's not going to come back nothing is coming back um it's going to it's uh it's going to keep getting worse uh the uh the tech companies have hacked into uh, the worst instincts of uh, of human beings, both at the micro individual level and at the macro level. The rewards now are um, to tweet out, uh, you know, constant, malign, uh, you know, tumoresque uh, nonsense, 
to make short videos, uh, you know, that, that are completely empty and lacking in any kind of uh, data or evidence or profundity or insight. Uh, maybe, I hate to say this, but maybe Nader's death is, you know, uh, kind of a marker because the room and the space for that kind of unambiguous clarity, uh, that kind of uh, breadth and that kind of human depth is, is non-existent. Uh, one of the reasons why we saw less and less of him in the public domain is because voices like Nader's and, and many others, uh, you know, uh, including, you know, within, you know, on, on this on this podcast uh, are going to be crowded out, are being crowded out and will be crowded out by noise and noise is going to sell. And so I actually think, Fussy, I don't know whether you genuinely are optimistic or you were just trying to be nice to me, but I thought I'd, I thought I'd remove the fig leaf and and just get real. That I, I don't see any any getting better. Yeah, Mush, it's not just the tech companies. I mean, you now have people who treat social media as a battlefield. Oh, yeah. They say this is, this is fifth generation warfare, <laughs> uh, which, which kind of makes me think, you know, Shaka, there were those days. I remember when I came across now, there were also the days when, you know, we used to have hashtag uh, fashionistas against the Taliban. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so social media has gone from something that was completely ignored and seen as something that a few burger in the West did, to now a full-fledged battlefield. And people believe this, and they actually think this is where wars need to be fought with quite violent uh, attacks on people. They may not hit them physically, but they have a force of violence, uh, along with the misogyny, the racism, uh, and just the, the, the toxicity that, that comes through. Uh, I find it very, very hard, for example, to have conversations with people on Twitter now. Uh, I still use it as a place to keep up with the news, to try and read different things, but it's not that place anymore. Yeah. No, I agree. I think also this complete anonymous sort of uh, personas that people uh, sort of take and then they spend sort of 10 hours a day uh, saying and writing things that they would never be able to write under their own name. Uh, and, uh, but yet there it is. And it's very popular. <laughs> it's, and like you said, it's a blood sport now. So, so I you think know. one thing that's changed, Fussy, go ahead. No, no, it's just a slight remark. It's like, you know, you mentioned fifth generation warfare. And to the degree that it exists between nations, I don't really have maybe such a strong view on it. But the idea that fifth-generation warfare is something that necessitates the suppression of voices inside your country is the problem. And that's the insidious construction. There's no real fifth-generation warfare. It's exactly. As, that's what I'm saying. It's used so, as an excuse to... Yeah. No, no, no. I know, I know. Uh, but... You know, this this idea, I mean, even if it were a real idea and if it were between nations, one would still think, okay, maybe this is one of the tools to leverage in whatever regional competition that exists. But, uh, you know, the thing that bothers me about this is that that's the outward manifestation of what the idea is supposed to be, whereas what it really is is suppression internally. And I know it's not a real thing, but since it has become a conversation piece and it's a term that's used as if it has 
a lot of substance. It's one of the most problematic things that I've seen come about. Yeah, and I think this uh, pandemic is actually going to make it worse. Uh, the, the swirl of conspiracy theories that one sees <laughs> at this time is, is absolutely... Actually, that's very interesting because as much as we say that, you know, fifth generation warfare is a particularly uh, fallacious concept that's originated here, at one element it is now absolutely being employed by China and its response to the U.S. and the U.S. and its painting of what China's responsibility of the pandemic is. And it's one of those things where we agree that fifth generation warfare was fiction. It's somehow become reality entirely now. But is that a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, there, Fuzzy? Yes, it is. I agree. I agree. And how different is it from just propaganda? Good old, centuries old propaganda. Yeah. Well, so, I, so I've, I, and I've taken uh, a bit of heat. I think my, my dearest friends just spare me because, you know, whatever, they're, they're kind. But I've actually written uh, more than one piece in which I've acknowledged fifth generation warfare as being a real thing. Um, I, I do it for two reasons. One is, if somebody convinced, is convinced that the Sandman exists or the Boogeyman exists, then to, you, know, you have to figure out what it is that you want from that party or from that person. Um, winning the war of like being right is, is not actually, at least, and you guys know this, like, I, I don't see the point of getting into a debate that you know, at the end of which you'll be more satisfied that you said all the things that are the right thing to say, but that the party you were trying to convince is as convinced of it as it was at the start seems to be kind of a fruitless thing. So one is there is absolutely an, a conviction that this thing exists within the Pakistani security establishment. And not only that it exists, but that it is, it is being and has been deployed against this country uh, in, in, in big ways. And the other is that there's plenty of evidence that not a single country that has any interest in Pakistan lets go of any opportunity to take advantage of the, of, of the vulnerabilities of the country. And, and part of that includes what you might call propaganda or public diplomacy or massaging public opinion, uh, whatever you want to call it. But, but there are plenty of uh, indicators that other countries have stakes in this country and they pursue those stakes both explicitly and implicitly. So tut-tutting the idea of fifth generation warfare, I don't know how smart that is, notwithstanding the fact that there is a, a dishonest um, and, uh, and unjust uh, campaign where people want to use this idea to suppress legitimate voice. And so I think it's about finding the balance between those two rather than simply rejecting the notion that fifth generation warfare is uh, is a thing. But Bishayev, like this fifth generation warfare sort of thing, I mean, like I think Umar said that, how's it different from old fashioned propaganda, right? Like social media is just a new platform. It's a new tool. It's a new delivery device. So I'm sure 
ISBR probably had this conversation when the television was being uh, introduced and figuring out, oh, how do we sort of leverage this? Uh, you know, fast forward to satellite TV. When it first came into Pakistan, I remember lots of conversations around um, national security and, you know, what if our people will now be able to see CNN? Oh my God, what's going to happen? Well, you know, guess what? BBC and shortwave radio existed for a long time. You know, so then that whole national security uh, satellite thing came in. Email started, similar conversation that now how are we going to control this? You know, so it's, I think evolution happens and I think organizations uh, dealing with national security uh, do analyze them, see how they're going to, uh, what the risks are, how they're going to sort of get in on the action. So again, yes, I, I, I don't deny that there are actors out there that are leveraging this, but sort of to create this boogeyman out of it that, oh, fifth generation warfare, ninth generation warfare, I mean, that's, you know, a bit of a stretch. And Mush, I mean, I, th I think there are definitely, like you said, there are countries that have strategic interests in like Pakistan. They're not open about them. There is a lot of misinformation about them. Sometimes the conspiracy theories are uncovered, but there is a way of, you know, rigorously pursuing the facts. I mean, this reminds me of one piece that Nader wrote when Robert Gates came forward and he said, yeah, Blackwater was operating in Pakistan. So suddenly everyone's confronting the media and they're getting to Kyra and Kyra's asking, he said, they can't, whoever said that Blackwater is not operating in Pakistan? So what Nada did was he did a simple Google search and he found Rahman Malik, January 2nd, 2010. No such agency named Blackwater working in Pakistan. Rahman Malik, November 13th, 2009. I assure you there is no Blackwater in Pakistan. In his statement to the Senate committee, Malik said Blackwater was not operating in Pakistan, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I get it. People do have these interests. They do prosecute them murkily. There are different things going on. But this idea, Musharraf, that you can't actually spot what those interests are, that this will always be out of your control, that there is this psychic manipulation taking place, and that you will always be on the losing end and therefore you can, what you, your only response to it is to create this mass paranoia and then exploit it by targeting your own people and silencing their voices. I think, I think that's where something's really good. Did we lose the Yeah, no, no, so, I mean, we're I, still on. I, I agree with Omar and I just want to add one thing is I think that if you remember after September 11 within the United States, one of the interesting questions that they asked is that the cost of defending ourselves from what was this one maybe isolated, I mean, incident, but if you have much greater preparation and you've got a large population of Muslims, you've got a population of others, and it breeds xenophobia, it breeds resentment. So, that kind of preparation for any kind of external aggressor has to also be mitigated. It can't be the super arching uh, basis of everything that you do because we've got other interests as well. We have to make sure that we have a society that has multiple sub-nations within it. They're able to live with one another. They feel the state 
is articulating what it needs and that their demands for what they would like is also not viewed with suspicion. So I just think that partly exactly what Omer was saying is that we can take adversarial countries or neighbors to be entirely true, but to view everything from just that prism, which sometimes happens, is probably much more damaging to the country's fabric inside than anything that can be done on the outside. Absolutely. I think we, we end up uh, probably entering, uh, you know, a, a discussion um, and a topic that merits many, not just one, but many episodes. Uh, uh, I think one of the things to go back to, you know, what Nader brought to the table and what we will, what we have lost as a result of his untimely and tragic de death is, uh, is exactly the clarity that we were talking about, that on, on issues like this, um, he was unapologetically uh, linear and clear, and uh, and it's one less voice that has uh, that has that clarity. I agree. We all pray for him, and inshallah. Uh, I pray also for his family. Yeah, absolutely. It must be really hard for them. Well, he lost his chacha four days ago, and and now this. So, so no question, it must be very, very difficult. Shakir, any final thoughts before we uh, we start to close out? No, man. I mean, I think uh, just that you know he was far too young to go, and uh, I think he's going to uh, be missed, and I'm going to miss reading him and seeing his tweets and. Uh, you know, my deepest condolences to his many friends and uh, his family. Omar? You know, it's, it's such a shock. And I'm thinking also of his close friends who, for whom it will take a while for that shock to wear off. And then for it to come at this time when actually the world is going through several such shocks where we all used to kind of take grunt to take for granted uh, that there had been some human advancement that could guarantee and uh, us all living a decently long life, and that mortality, early mortality, was going down, uh, average ages were going up, healthcare systems were improving. It seems, uh, as with much else, we're living in these very precarious times, uh, which are very, very unpredictable. And the one lesson I think I would draw from the eloquent, powerful, and moving words of Nada's close friends is take care of everyone you know. Stay in touch with them. Make sure yeah. you're, you're close to them. Uh, let We all need to take care of each other. Uh, sorry if that sounds trite, but it seems quite important in these days because you don't know how long you have with that person. Absolutely yeah. right, Omar. No doubt. Pussy. Um, I'd just end and say that, you know, I wish all the best to his family. I hope that they find it within themselves to deal with this and uh, he'll be missed. No doubt. Uh, Nagar was a massive... Uh, Springsteen fan uh, among uh, his musical choices or his likes uh, we shared a few 
I wasn't as big a Sonic Youth fan, but uh, we both loved Rage Against the Machine, and we both loved uh, The Boss. Uh, may Allah Ta'ala forgive uh, all our sins and uh, grant peace to Nader and Sabr and patience to his family. <laughs>